0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome. Welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Hello, everybody. Great to have you with us. Also great to have the Premier of Alberta with us, Danielle Smith. Premier, good to have you. How are you?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Roy.
0: Yeah, let's talk about uh, Federal Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo releasing his draft expectation to, with few exceptions, force fossil fuels out of producing the electric grid by 2035. You issued a direct challenge to to the minister. Please speak to us about that.
2: You know, I've been talking with the federal government for some time because I knew that these regulations were coming. I mean, it's pretty outrageous. They announced them in August of last year, right in the middle of our leadership contest in our province knowing that we would be the most affected province by them. We didn't even have a permanent leader in, in place. And so that, that was part of the reason why I, I passed the Alberta Sovereignty within the United Canada Act, is I knew just transition legislation was coming, I knew clean electricity regs were coming, and I know an emissions cap is coming. And now I think people are beginning to see just how much the federal government is trying to intervene in our area of jurisdiction. And the reason why I put such a hard line out there is that unlike other provinces, Alberta has uh, phased out coal. We did it earlier than was uh, would have been practical because we now had to pay up uh, billions of dollars for stranded assets. And just as we're sort of co- coming to uh, understand the full cost of that, the the federal government now wants to ask us to to uh, phase out natural gas. And natural gas on our power grid is ninety percent of our production. No other province has that level of production of natural gas. It's just sort of the nature of our geography. It's the nature of our endowment of resources. It's part of why we, uh, we switched to that is because it has less emissions and now we're getting punished for it. And so that that is the reason why we've been asking for a longer time frame. We know that we can get to a carbon neutral power grid by 2050. We've talked with our producers about that. 2050 is reasonable. 2035 is not.
0: In a tweet, uh, Minister Gilbo writes, he agrees with you, Premier, and with At Oil Gas Canada. And he says, that is exactly what building a clean grid is all about, limiting unabated fossil fuels by 2035, not forbidding them, but making sure we have as much renewables and clean tech while ensuring the affordability and reliability of our grid. Is he talking out of both sides of his mouth at the same time?
2: Yeah, he's gaslighting. He's trying to make it sound like he's the reasonable one and that this is totally achievable. And we agree. We don't agree. And I I think people need to understand a little bit about gas uh, or about uh, solar and wind and why we've been able to add so much in Alberta. The reason is that because when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, we're able to power up quickly with natural gas. Peaker plants is what they're called. They power up and power down so that they offer the the balance. So that when wind and solar do come on, they're able to to provide our electricity. And when they don't um, produce any electricity at all, which happens, then we're able to to provide natural gas so that we have seamless reliability in our power grid. I uh, what if you look back at this Twitter battle I'm having with the environment minister, I pointed out that we had seven times in the last uh, in the fall and winter where our power grid came close to failing. And when you look at how much wind and solar were being produced on those seven days, in some cases, it was less than 100 megawatts, even though we have about 5000 megawatts of installed power. I know I know there's a fantasy that wind and solar operate all the time. They don't. They're not reliable. They're intermittent. And when it's minus 30 and you get no wind and you get no solar, you need to get your power from somewhere. And for us. The backup is natural gas. And that's part of what uh, I think the rest of the country might not understand. And it's part of what uh, clearly the environment minister doesn't understand. But I am not going to let my people freeze in the dark in the middle of winter because he has an ideological aspiration to achieve an unachievable target. We're we're just not going to do it. We're not going to implement it. And we'll work towards our own emissions reduction target of 2050, which we know is achievable.
0: Will you be working cooperatively with the... uh Government of Saskatchewan as well?
2: I think that Scott Moe is in a similar position. He's got, I think, 80% of his power grid. It relies on hydrocarbon fuels, some coal, and uh, I believe natural gas. Uh, Nova Scotia is in the same boat too. They have, I think, uh, about 60% of their power grid relies on hydrocarbon fuels. Even New Brunswick, it's about 30%. And so this is the reason why when they put forward these goals of 2035, it's going to cost the entire country $1.7 $1.7 trillion to achieve that with the new infrastructure by by 2035. Those of us who have a much higher reliance on this are going to shoulder a, a much higher cost. So our share is probably, we've calculated about $400 billion. We think that that will raise the cost of power two to five fold in the next 12 years. And we, we just simply can't afford to do that. So the, the, what we've been asking for is and I think there's some reasonable cabinet ministers in the in the Liberal government. I have no idea why they keep allowing their environment minister to go rogue and create so much division in this country because we have the ability to bring hydrogen on. Hydrogen can be used for for uh, for power purposes. Hydrogen can be used for vehicles as well. We're very keen to build out our hydrogen infrastructure, small modular nuclear are going to start being rolled out in Ontario. I believe in the late um, sort of 28, 29, we don't have an, an, a structure, a regulatory structure for bringing a nuclear on in our province. We've never done it before. And so we have to work with the federal government to do that. That's going to take some years. We also know that we have uh, can work collaboratively with British Columbia and Manitoba to build transmission lines, across the the country so that we're able to have an integrated power grid. That takes time. So I, I want you to understand I'm, I'm going to work to achieve those targets, but I'm also realistic about how long it takes for landowner consultation, First Nation consultation, being able to route lines, have all of the different regulatory processes work at the federal, provincial, local level, as well as First Nations management and environmental issues, caribou, like all of this, is part of the reason why you can't just snap your fingers and have these things happen. You've got to, you've got to start the process and then and then work it through. And that's why I think if we can get those things in alignment with our federal government, then we will be able to get to a, a carbon neutral power grid. But it's going to be 2050. It's it's certainly not going to be
0: 2035. Okay. So um, is uh, Stephen Gilbo creating a national unity crisis? And if he yes, asks, uh,
2: there's you- no question. Because this is the thing. I I don't think the constitution is advisory. I think the constitution was drafted the way it was because our founders realized that we have such a geographically diverse uh, country with different endowments of resources in each part of it, different needs in each part of it. You cannot micromanage that from the center. And so if you look at our constitution, the development and production of resources, provincial responsibility The development and production of electricity, provincial responsibility. They have no business coming in and telling us, dictating to us, how we manage our resources, how we produce electricity. We can work collaboratively, I think, on our joint interest of making sure that uh, it reduces the overall amount of emissions in a reasonable timescale. But this is offside with the Constitution, and we're going to be asserting that with every uh, tool in the toolkit that we've got.
0: Canada's electric grid is already 84% non-fossil fuel, so that should be kept in mind. Uh, Premier, do you think this federal government has placed a target on on Alberta?
2: They have, but they've t- they placed a target on everybody. I mean, if you look at uh, Bravo to Quebec for having uh, developed out hydroelectric power with uh, with Newfoundland and Labrador all those years ago, and Bravo to uh, to Ontario for having hydro and nuclear and Bravo to BC and, and Manitoba for having hydro. But but let's be clear about the growth of demand for electricity. If you look at Quebec, Quebec is at the limit of its growth. They need to bring new electricity on. And um, I guess the question will be, is there an appetite to bring on another two or three or four hydroelectric dams? What are they going to do? What is British Columbia going to do? They just um, did site C, which is a relatively small Uh, project and it uh, it began the regulatory approval process in 1954 so these are not easy projects to bring on either i think nuclear has the opportunity potentially but you know you have to overcome some of the fears that people have because of uh, some of the negative campaign that has taken place against nuclear so that's not exactly easy but every single province is constrained on electricity and this is the reason why every single province is going to be impacted by this. We're, we are most impacted because we uh, made a bet that natural gas being such a clean fuel was uh, going to be something that would sustain us in, uh, in the long run. And the federal government's changed the rules on us. But everybody is going to be impacted by that. And that's why we're going to lead the charge in saying, let's be reasonable about this. And reasonable is 2050, not 2035.
0: Uh, and just this final thought. China's President Xi said just days ago, his country will forge its own path to net zero and will not be influenced on that. Not what he said in two thousand and fifteen after the Paris Accord. So China, which is the world's greatest emitter, going their own way. We're such a minor player in this as far as emitting uh, carbon into the uh, atmosphere. And here we are. I have a premier of a Canadian province saying that the federal energy minister is creating a national unity crisis. This is very serious business.
2: It absolutely is. And the, the thing is, we can help China. If you look at the amount of coal plants that China continues to bring on every single week, that, that's, I think, the thing that, that, the, that, our, that your listeners need to understand, is that we have a role to play in reducing emissions around the world. And I was at the LNG Canada conference um, uh, just a couple of weeks ago talking to the LNG producers, the, the industry associations in every major region of the world. And they're very, very worried that if Canada doesn't do its part to help provide them with that cleaner source of fuel, they're going to switch back to coal. South Korea and Japan and uh, the uh, other other nations of the world, India, they're, they're not going to sit back and, and have their aspirations stunted because uh, we have these unrealistic targets in, in Canada, they are going to switch back to coal, which will just increase emissions. So our part of our solution has always been, let's stop demonizing natural gas. Natural gas is a cleaner burning fuel. Natural gas provides dramatically reduced reductions over coal. Let's make sure that the world, as it's industrializing, as we're bringing the entire planet's population up to a high quality of life similar to ours, let's use natural gas as that as that interim fuel while we're waiting for the technology to develop around others. We are we are not trying to be obstructionist. We're trying to be practical and reasonable and achieve what we think is a global emissions target. It does us no good to collapse our economy in Canada with 45 million people and then watch China with a, what 1.2 billion people continue to just accelerate and grow in in its emissions that makes no sense from a from a planetary point of view
0: eric alper the that eric alper 16 time juno award winner six time nominee for publicist of the year during the canadian music week who's worked with some of the biggest and most important artists of our time that eric alper dot com how are you i'm good how are you well, I, I'm I'm good. I just uh, spoke with Daniel Smith about uh, energy and um, the, the environment minister, and now we're talking about Taylor Swift.
3: Yeah, let's get to the real importance it's, of it's stuff the day today.
0: Great segue. <laughs> Eric, what makes Taylor Swift so so special?
3: You know, uh, or it's that a dumb at question. At the end of it all, it has to be the songs. That's that's the starting and end point for all of it. Just the fact that she has exceptional songwriting skills and always her available uh, her the ability for her at the time of 12 years old to start writing lyrics on MySpace and connecting with total strangers around the world um, who all feel the same Way that she did She just is able to craft Really emotional, relatable And often autobiographical lyrics It set a new standard, not just for women songwriters, but for sensitive guys, too, to, you know, write their songs in complete isolation away from everybody else and then perform them in front of 60,000 people that all say, yes, I'm feeling that, too. And then, of course, just brilliant, absolutely astonishing marketing ability to give people what they want and sometimes give the people what they don't even know that they want.
0: Yeah I was wondering whether my question was as dumb a question as uh, in the 1960s asking what makes the beatles so special or in the 70s springsteen or billy joel and billy joel actually likened
3: uh, taylor swift to the beatles yeah as I, as i understand it so, so what is yeah, it? absolutely you know the the euphoria and the absolute um bonkers that's going on right now with Taylor Swift's era's tour. It's going to be the music industry's first billion-dollar tour, and then some. Right now, Elton John um, grossed about $930 million of his Goodbye Yellow Brick Road tour that lasted five years. Of course, two of the years were kind of canceled due to COVID, um, but you know, she's going to surpass that billion-dollar mark um, quite early in this tour, and then from then on in, it's anybody's guess, but Right now, on average, each person going to a show so far this year has spent $1,800 Canadian on Taylor Swift, whether it's tickets, hotels, gas, food, parking, alcohol, um, merchandise. So you total up 50, 55,000 tickets available at each of her six Toronto shows, that 330,000 tickets that's available, each person is spending $2,000, that's $660 million worth of revenue that's that's going to be generated just from these six shows alone. No wonder Trudeau tweeted and begged her to come to this country.
0: Yeah. Am I correct? 31 million people registered for tickets?
3: Yeah, because it was opened up worldwide. And so, you know, part of... Sometimes when, when major... Artists announce shows. Um, they put a geo block on buying tickets, which means that if you are not from that city or state or province or country, you're linked up with that credit card's address, and so you're not going to be able to buy a ticket. It seems that that wasn't the case for this one. So there were people around the world that are happily willing to put Toronto in their travel plans, just like they were when you were in, you know, in Winnipeg traveling to Minneapolis or Vancouver checking out the seattle show there were people that were coming halfway around the world for these for for these shows it's something that really hasn't been seen probably since michael jackson's thriller tour but before then it actually might be Beatlemania and there was four of them taylor swift only taylor swift
0: yeah i remember Beatlemania. i can't even say it
3: i was there (laughs) Did, did you see them in toronto
0: no I uh, I had an opportunity to go into the uh, hotel room in Montreal at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel when yeah. uh, John and Yoko recorded Give Peace a Chance and I, uh, I, a couple of the guys from the radio station. went. I was in my, I guess I was in my early 20, 20, <laughs> 20 or twenty-one years of age. And I had about enough. So of Lenin and and uh, and uh, and, you know, and Yoko oh, no, and I didn't go. But another guy who went with me is the guy who's playing the drums. Ie, pounding the door. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, look, people want to know how the how the how the process goes. I the uh, mom sent uh, sent this to me. I tried to get some tickets for my daughter, but got waitlisted. Meanwhile. While some people who entered multiple email addresses got multiple codes, how's it work?
3: Yeah, it, it's really based on Ticketmaster's algorithm, and and I know people get frustrated by Ticketmaster, but they have to understand that it's nothing more than a nameless, faceless website. Um, they work alongside, of course, with Live Nation, the promoter, or AEG, the other big promoter around the world, along with the artists, to devise a system to ensure that there are as few computer bots gathering up tickets as possible and ending up on third-party websites. Um, The fact of the matter is is that you know, with 30x million people that are trying to all get a code. Um, nobody's quite sure how many codes were given out. In fact, nobody knows um, how many tickets were on sale during the verified pre-sale. It could have been 20 pairs of tickets. It could have been 20,000 tickets. Um, they keep that information close to the vest. And really, they don't have a, a, any right to give it to people. Um, we don't know how many bags of lettuce there are in the storeroom at the grocery store. So, you know, the price rise and fall based on supply and demand. Same thing with cars. Airline tickets we know because we can see how many seats are available provided that the airline actually is truthful and tells us. We don't know that about concert tickets. And in fact, in most cases, um, the the promoters and the artists hold back tickets um, even well after the on-sale date for the general public just to add more buzz and more hype. Make sure that it's sold out. Make sure that people have a case of fear of missing out and will pay double to go and see it. That's all part of the market. Right. It's all part of the buzz of creating excitement. Um, so when people online, and I've seen it, say, you know, I don't know anybody that's got a code. Well, it basically comes down to one in every Eric, 400 people perhaps got a code. Eric, I don't know 400 people, so maybe I know six. Eric, they try to weed it down as much as possible. Eric. Yeah.
0: There's a young man across the glass from me, from me right now. In the other studio, he's the technical producer. His sister got two tickets. Going through this process, paid 150 each. Amazing. Yeah,
3: i That's amazing. They should go in and buy a lottery ticket. So if they win, they can now afford better seats to Taylor Swift.
0: <laughs> I see that some of the resellers are the tickets have reached close to 20 grand each. Yeah. It's, and that's U.S. That's amazing. Can yeah, we just spend I, I, a couple of minutes talking about Robbie Robertson? Yeah just uh, Uh, such a huge loss you know
3: yeah i mean has to be up there with the top three influential artists ever come out of this country that's for sure right up there with neil young and Joni mitchell and you know robbie robertson was the band um he was the one that drove them to success he was the one that introduced the band to bob dylan which changed music when bob dylan went electric and and changed rock music and folk music forever he was the driving force and he broke up the band because he just got so tired of the infighting and the drugs and alcohol problems that were going through the band um, and uh went on to a huge successful career not only solo wise but also the the relationship that he had with martin scorsese making music yeah, for his yeah. films like you know raging bull and the departed and just such a such a sad loss all around but you you know, as always the music is there for us forever
0: Will we have an election before twenty twenty five? It's possible. I would think Mr. Singh is going to think about it very carefully because hanging on to that deal with the Liberals at this particular time isn't doing his party any good at all. I and we're going to talk to a man who knows about this because he's been uh, polling on it. Let's let's talk to um, Andrew Enns, who's the senior vice president for Leger Marketing, on what Canadians are saying about the possibilities that could erupt or could occur. In the next federal election, and uh, and uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. How are you?
1: I'm uh, I'm uh, great, uh, Roy, and appreciate being back on your program.
0: Yeah, time. it's always good to talk to you. So I looked at uh, polling that you did uh, last month, right? That's correct. And the Conservatives at thirty seven percent, the Liberals at twenty eight, the Democrats at seventeen. Thirty seven percent is getting pretty close. To majority government territory, depending on how much penetration you have in provinces like Ontario and Quebec. So, could you just give us an assessment of of what's happening with the Conservatives, what's happening with the Liberals, and what's happening with the New, De- New Democrats?
1: Well, yeah, you're right. That poll was done uh, the early sort uh, of July tenth to the uh, to the uh, fifth or July seventh to tenth. So it's a uh, you know about a month now, but but clearly. Uh, you know, the the steady drumbeat, I would say, of, of um, Mr. Polyev and the Conservatives, uh, they've been, you know, to some people criticize it, but I think he's been pretty diligent with respect to going after the affordability issue and, and uh, you know, matters of that nature. And I think that in combination with that issue in general is just not going away for Canadians. It's taking a bit of a toll. Um, the Liberal, you know, the Liberal government has... Uh, is, is struggled. Like, I'm not the first one to say they didn't have a great, uh, they really haven't had a very good 2023. Um, you know, they, they've been sidetracked with, uh, you know, issues uh, like electoral interference, and, and then just still grappling with this affordability, and interest rates, and, and housing, and...
0: And a public inquiry into China's interference in Canada.
1: That's right, right? You know, and, and, and then the The report that came down, and then that how that sort of took off and became a story of its own, all of which if you're the government it it's just not conducive for for the government to try to get out its its message, its narrative, you know, try as they might all, all political parties governments all want all want to have sort of a a uh, you know a fairly simple uh, but strategic narrative that they want to be able to repeat over and over to Canadians and, and if you're the government, you're dealing with issues that aren't part of that. It creates a problem, and I think we're seeing it. I, you know Roy I was looking back uh you know sort of at polls and polling, you know going back even during the pandemic and and quite frankly, we had you know two two years of nothing really to see here. You know, Tories up a little, Liberals up a little, but really statistically tied. And quite frankly, the narrative was if there was an election, nothing would change. But I would say late winter we started to see movement, and uh, not surprisingly, coincides with really the, the bite on inflation and some of those uh, some of those uh, issues really taking hold. And what we saw back in the late winter were sort of four or five point leads for the Conservatives. Now have stretched as as you you noted in our poll to, um, you know, eight, nine, 10 point leads, um, you know, our poll and a few others that have come out and, you know, I'm not quite as bullish as you in terms of, does that, does that, uh, you know, portend a majority conservative government, but it definitely, it definitely indicates there's going to be a change in, in sort of the, the, the structure of the house of commons with respect to seats. I think, I think, um, you know, I think back to 2008, really, that that this could these kind of numbers would sort of get us into that kind of environment where the where the conservatives had a clear plurality, uh, you know, the greatest number of seats um, and therefore likely get that that opportunity to uh, to form a minority. I think that's probably where we're sitting at right about. Uh, yeah. right Andrew, about
0: if now. if the liberals and they are, they're sliding backwards and they've been sliding back for a while. And the prime minister's popularity has perhaps been outpacing the slide of the party. Uh, that's not a good projection. That's not a good. That's not a good scenario for them. And how you know, do you how do you recover from that?
1: Well, it's it's yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I, I you know, look they they um, they obviously they obviously realized they needed to retool and 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 uh, move some move some good communicators around in economic uh, portfolios. Hence the fairly significant cabinet shuffle. We'll see. It's early days on that, but quite frankly, I think you know history will say that um, that on its own, just changing some personnel around, don't necessarily, uh, yeah, you know, change the trajectory. You have to change, quite frankly, um, what you're doing from a policy perspective, and I think that's challenging. I mean, the the two. The two big people that, that still, I would suggest, dictate, uh, you know, a fair amount of policy, the prime minister and, and his finance minister, Christopher Freeland, haven't changed. And, um, you know, I, I, quite frank, I have to say, Roy, and my, uh, you know, my boss, uh, Jean-Marc Leger, he kind of summed it up in, a, in an interview last week, I thought, well, is that, you know, the prime minister was well-suited when he was elected in 2015 for coming into an environment of, a uh, you know, things were good in Canada, but we were, you know, we wanted a new government and there was this, we felt this optimism and he was the guy, he was the sunny ways. And and for a while there, I mean, he, he was hitting on that mark.
0: Eight years ago. We're
1: in a, yeah, but we're in a period now where the ways aren't sunny. No, they're not. And he, and he still, when you look at him though, I think a lot of Canadians still see this sunny ways type of guy in this Always a, you know, kind of a... So,
0: so you, think, you you get the feeling, Andrew, that he's still got personal popularity that might exceed that of Pierre Polyev? Is uh, that what your I, numbers I it, tell you?
1: No, I, no, our numbers don't tell us that he's got that popularity. Okay. I think Canadians are wearing thin on him. Yeah. And quite frankly, uh, um, you know, look, Mr. Polyev's got his challenges, but Mr. Polyev hasn't been on the job a full year yet. Uh, and, he, and he's got, they're doing some advertising now. We'll see how those work, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's still got time to grow on Canadians. And uh, whereas Mr. Trudeau, he's, you know, a lot of Canadians are, you know, I did some polling, you know, goes back now a number of months, but, you know, upwards 55, 65% of Canadians have soured on him, you know, and it's difficult to change those minds.
0: Andrew, if I were to say to you, and we only have a few seconds here, if I were to say to you, it's likely looking at what I'm looking at now, and just this, I'm looking at your numbers, and I'm going with my gut. And I've covered a lot of elections over the years. I see the possibility, a real possibility, for a conservative majority government, regardless of whether the election is next year or 25. Am I on base, off base?
1: I think you're optimistic, but I think I, <clears throat> you know, I think there's going to be there's going to be a breakthrough in Ontario. Uh, we're seeing seven, you know, six seven point leads in Ontario for the Tories. Mm-hmm. They're going to make up a bit of ground in Atlanta, Canada. Um, not, you know, There's not a ton of seats there for Conservatives, but they will win some more based on sort of the, the current numbers. Okay. Um, but but it's still... Um, uh, and look, if they go into a campaign with an unpopular prime minister, that's dangerous. If, yes, it is. If I were in Liberal strategy, yes, I'd it say is. That'd be, that's dangerous. Things can get out of hand here.
0: There's an op-ed in the National Post by Frank Stronach. We must stop the explosive growth of government bureaucracy before it's too late. Mr. Stronach is perhaps Canada's most successful entrepreneur and founder of Magna International. I just want to—well, let me put uh, Mr. Stronach on the air first, and then I want to read just a few lines from his op-ed. How are you, Frank?
4: I'm great, Roy. I enjoy your show. Thank you so much. Glad to be on your show.
0: Thank you. It's, it's an honor to speak with you always. Let me just read a few lines from your from your op-ed. And it's the beginning. You wrote, 10 years ago, the Montreal-based Institute for Research on Public Policy published an article in its Policy Options magazine titled Fixing the Bureaucracy, which quoted a retired deputy minister who claimed that Canada's civil service was, quote, seriously overstaffed. If we were seriously overstaffed with bureaucrats in 2013, what would the former deputy minister say today? Back in 2013, the federal government employed nearly 263,000 civil servants, Today Ottawa employs more than three hundred and fifty seven thousand, a thirty-six percent increase in one decade. More than twenty new twenty thousand new federal civil servants joined the bureaucratic ranks in the last year alone. Frank, this is head spinning stuff.
4: Yeah, it's very very serious, very uh, the economy can function, right? The, the the artery of the economy they're full cholesterol. You know, it gets worse and worse. But let me make one thing clear. huh? In a civilized society, nobody should be made the scapegoat. Like uh, people have a right to find a job, whatever openings there are. Huh? The system doesn't function. Okay, the system. So uh, we, um, the the bureaucracy is climbing on the municipal level, on the provincial level, and on the national level. But we, you know, I've always said the harder a bureaucrat works, the more bureaucrats he's going to create. But at the same time, I do say it's not the fault. It's it's the system doesn't function. we got to take a look at the system.
0: Yeah, and you point to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, small business in this country, as an example of a sector that has been negatively affected by this massive growth of bureaucracy.
4: Yes, uh, uh, for instance i, I have for an example uh, i i have a piece of land you know a farm and uh i got a permit to build a greenhouse but i want to build uh next to the greenhouse a farmers market i'm, I'm waiting for two and a half years now to get a permit right amen <laughs> hey it's this, it's that and that doesn't come for- so it's it's so difficult huh look uh <clears throat> I've, I've always pointed out uh uh you know, uh, when the first computers came on the market about uh, 50 years ago, the slogan was, if you got one of those computers, you can, cr- you can eliminate a total uh, office for an office building. Now, when I look around in any city, might have been Europe or uh, the United States or Canada, there's 20 times more office buildings. Yeah. What do you think they're doing? They don't make products in there. It's regulations, regulations, and financial transactions. Yeah. So we got to we got Basically, I'm saying we got to take a look. We got to start making things again.
0: You know, you're right. Uh, the CFIB, Canadian Federation of Independent mm-hmm. Business, estimates that government regulations cost small businesses nearly forty billion dollars annually. Of that amount it estimates that roughly thirty percent is unnecessary, redundant, or overly burdensome regulation. These are small businesses. This is mom and pop. These are the people quite often who sponsor the you know, the minor league baseball team or the kids hockey team. And it's I very th- difficult for them to function in that kind of environment.
4: I think small business is the backbone of any country. In most most jobs are created. I think most taxes are collected by the governments, and most uh, you know the new inventions, the new products, the new, the, the new patents, the two it, it is created by small business, right? So. So uh, small business will will uh, is very much uh, handicapped by the way by this g- a huge amount of uh, bureaucracy, which uh, which is climbing every every year. So we, I, th- I think, again, we a, in a civilized way, we got we got to take a look at it. What can we do to reduce it?
0: Yeah, and, and you write, uh, I'm quoting you here. I've suggested for quite some time now that we should reduce government overhead by 5% per year over a 10-year period. In the meantime, however, we need to take more urgent action. We should implement an immediate freeze on all hiring in the civil service, and we should enact a policy that whenever a civil servant retires, the job will remain permanently vacant. And and here you have government that flies in the the face of common sense like you wrote— and they hire massively, hugely larger numbers of uh, of, of civil servants.
4: Um but yep, it basically shows you that government doesn't do anything. They look at that, and uh, they approve it. Otherwise, it's not possible.
0: So you're right. Bureaucracy so it's not is— not the
4: civil servants. It, it's, it's government officials. Yeah.
0: Frank, you Members wrote— a bu- parliament. You wrote bureaucracy but, is did, like—
4: did do you hear anybody, any parliamentarian say, "Look, we gotta, we gotta make sure that we eliminate our debt. Our debt is climbing—150 yeah. million every day on just the interest payments."
0: That's, uh, that's insane. Um, and We finally found out from the parliamentary bureau, uh, parliamentary budget officer on this program. He told us that the interest uh, that we pay each year now is 46 billion just to service the debt.
4: Yes, it's huge. It, it's uh, you know, it's like it's hundred and fifty million a day.
0: Oh, man. so you wrote in your That's piece
4: about three billion a month.
0: Bureaucracy is like a cancer. Yes, spreads if it's unchecked, and it what it strangles, it strangles the economy. It strangles the it's, country.
4: It's like when you relate it to the human body, you know, if you if you have if there's too much cholesterol, the blood can't flow. Mm-hmm. And the economy can't, uh, the, the economy gatherers, uh, they're just starting to get plugged.
0: How does it affect larger companies, Frank, like your Magna which you grew from a small company, very small company, and you talked to us about that on the air the first time we had a conversation to, a, to an absolutely outstandingly run and very successful international corporation. How does bureaucracy negatively affect the corporate reality in this country? Well,
4: I've, I, I created a system where, uh, where we are still basically a small company. Uh, imagine I started from scratch from a garage up a company which, which employs 170,000 employees. Wow. Just imagine that. So I, every factory, yes, we have a few factories where, where we have maybe about five 6,000 uh, people. Those are just a few. But we have over four, about 420 factories, and pretty well 90% where we see that the factory doesn't grow, grow larger than 200 people per factory. Yes, we have automation, we have robotics, the factories are large, but it's the people content. When, we, when there's more and more people, you know, in one spot, people become a number. It doesn't work. So we got no central purchasing, we got no, everything is decentralized and every factory is a separate profit center. So we cannot, the head office cannot say, you're the man you must buy from that and that source because the price is good. If you do that, the next time you hear from, 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 the, from a fellow which manages a factory and say, look, the price was good, but the quality was bad. That's why my customer is unhappy. Next time he would say the, the price was good, the quality was good, but the delivery was bad. So we have a totally decentralized system. The manager can manage, and uh, he can take advantage to run under the corporate umbrella, or he could be outside of it. So we got to take a look at the system. There's no difference, uh, you know. uh, When I work in the factory, I I pretty well can tell without looking at the books if they make monies or not. If I see too much offices, there's no way that factory can make monies. There's no matter how hard the, the workers on the factory floor work if up front there's too many offices. So we got to really take a look at the system.
0: Frank, you speak such common sense and you've been so successful in life. You continue to be so successful in life and yet government, they don't seem to be able to understand the, 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 the clear logic of well, the argument that you're putting forward because they just
4: I, I'm actually putting but I, I put but a better seven-point program, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, I want to I, I want to stress very much: it, it, it doesn't lead anything if you point the finger; hey, it's the fault of this and that. We all we all at fault to a certain extent, right? So we just got to come up with the system which where we mm, where we where the economy works again. I've always said, and I think everybody agrees: all the politicians agree. If the economy doesn't work, nothing else will work. You cannot feed the hungry, cannot look after the most fragile people, the elderly, the sick, and the handicapped. But we do not talk what makes the economy work. The economy is driven by three forces, smart managers, hardworking employees, and investors. All three have a right to the outcome, which is profits. The message I want to get across, employees have a moral right, the sum of the profits to help the generate. And the system, if you got this gigantic large factors, it doesn't work. People become a number.
0: Yeah, they do, Frank. So
4: thank I'm, you. I'm working on a program, and hopefully, hopefully, it's not a political. It's purely, it's purely economic. Where well, I try to say, look, it doesn't matter if you be an anti or a liberal, or conservative. For the sake of the country, we got to make sure the economy works.
0: Yes, sir. Frank, thank you no, so I'm, much I'm, for the I'm, time. I'm,
4: um, I'm, uh, you know, I, I I'll, I'll should send you in that uh, Colour to Sunboard program.
0: I really appreciate you coming on the show again, Frank. Thank you so very much.
4: Okay, great. Good problem.
0: Professor Thierry Bro of Sciences Po University in Paris. He's a former official with the French Ministry of Economy, Finance and Industry, represented France on oil markets, and advised on emergency issues at International Energy Agency and European Commission. He's heard the same views and decisions delivered this week by Federal Environment Minister Gilbo from European, from EU politicians. And Professor Bro points to Europe's resulting massive energy deficiencies. He's done that before on this program. And subsidies for consumers as energy costs and prices skyrocket. Thierry, thank you very much for coming back on the program. We have limited time, but when you heard, what did you hear from the Premier?
5: Well, first of all, congratulations on Rory on this great interview, because what I've understood from this Alberta Premier is that she is knowledgeable and she understands and she wants to be pragmatic. And the only thing I would like to add is I think it makes no sense in saying some people are evil just because they want to be pragmatic. I think if we aren't pragmatic, we are going to fail as we failed in Europe.
0: So how badly have things failed in Europe? Remind our listeners, how badly have they failed when natural gas and, uh, and, and, and in fact, nuclear energy were set aside?
5: Yes. I mean, just uh, in my country, France, remember the government that's sitting uh, right now in in position, uh, it wants to build eight new nukes. And for the same government that five years ago closed uh, a fully operational nuke because they were stating exactly to the opposite of what you've heard from the Alberta premier, that we were going to consume less electricity completely insane so because of this we are short of energy and what happened because of the weaponization of gas and i mentioned to you very often this uh, we had seen extreme high prices and our economy and our people were not able to cope with it so what happened last year alone a trillion dollars has been given in terms of subsidy to our people and our industry. Which means, at the end of the day, we are a trillion less well-off, which means that in the coming years, when we will have to pay for education or when we will have to pay for military purposes, we will be less off in Europe.
0: Yeah. And as you pointed out in an email to me earlier in the week, Canada is not in the top six of emitters In the world, Canada accounts for one point five percent of total world CO two emission from from energy. Yes.
5: And this is why I think what the Alberta Premier was uh, alluding is absolutely important. I mean, if we want, we need to tackle the problem in China. And the way we can tackle the problem in China is produce more gas in our countries, uh, Canada and the U.S., to allow this gas to flow uh, to Asian countries, be it Asia, uh, be it Japan, be it uh, India or be it China. And also we have and we are doing this in Europe to put a tax on Chinese products that are coming that which which has a huge coal uh, content, be the solar panels, for example, because otherwise we are just pushing our industry away from OECD countries into China, where the industry will operate with coal-fired power plants. And as the premier mentioned, it makes no sense on a global level.